Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Somebody will bring it to you. And that will be on page 661. This week we'll be talking about the, the mediator. Last week we talked about the covenant. And this week we will be addressing the mediator. We're walking through the London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is our church's statement of faith. How does a country drift into spiritual and moral decay? Now, I know wrong is wrong, but there are some instances in which the wickedness of man's heart is so exposed that it causes everybody to stop and say, what's going on? When a gunman goes into an elementary school and shoots children to kill them, we have to stop and say, What's wrong? And when parents gather around their children and encourage them to fight one another, we have to ask, what's wrong? How does society become so evil that their darkness has become their light? And when I say evil... The measurement is, is God's word. So while most people may say using the Lord's name is vain, it's just, a, it's just a phrase, the Lord says it's evil. And when some would say getting revenge is okay, the Lord says that's evil. Now we have all sinned since birth, and that's because we inherited sinful broken, wretched hearts from our father Adam. Therefore, we all are at conflict with God. We are out of peace with God. We are at odds with him. And God is holy and pure, and he is far too good to look on us. And so for God to have any relationship with sinful man, there must be a mediator. A go-between. Someone who in some ways could help resolve the conflict and allow us to have a relationship. And so in God's mercy, he created three offices that would mediate a relationship with him. He created the office of king to mediate his rule over his people. He created the office of prophet to mediate the word to his people, and he mediate the office of priest to mediate man's worship to him. And these were the three main offices that, uh, that God had uh, ordained to occur back in um, the times when it, um, he, Israel was his covenant people. Thinking about um, in the Old Testament. And so, now, when we turn to Jeremiah chapter 32, 
we find our place in a point in time in which Israel has turned their backs on God. They have forsaken him. And let's see the cause of that. Jeremiah 32, verse 31 through 35. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned their back to me, their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them. Nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. The people that was once in God's favor, now in God's anger. God had previously granted them a miraculous deliverance from slavery and brought them into the land of promise. But once they got into the land, they became worthless because they stopped seeking the Lord. The Lord had given them clear and loving rules to follow. But since they decided to break God's commands and rules, they defiled themselves. Now, did you see verse 32? It said, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Here we see the priest, the king, and the prophets had all provoked the Lord to anger and led the people to sin. And look at verse 35. It goes so far as to say at the end, it says, to cause Judah to sin. Now, one might say, you can't blame these offices for people's actions. The people made their own decision. Yes, that is true. But if the people did make the right decisions, it was in spite of their leaders, not because of them. But God had ordained that these leaders would lead them in righteousness, and they weren't. How could they hear from God if God had ordained that the word would come from the prophet? And how could they worship him rightly if he ordained it for it to go through the priest? And how could they walk in his ways if he ordered them to be ruled by the king? God has woven into the fabric of life natural leadership relationships. The man leads his wife at home, and if for some reason it is a one-parent household, then that one parent leads the home. Employers lead their employees. Pastors lead the church, and governments lead their cities. Leadership is very important. 
So if you are in a leadership role, cherish it. Be a good steward of it. And also treat it delicately. One of the verses that scares me is Matthew 18, verses 5 through 7. Just listen. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. How many people are tempted not to trust Christ because they heard that Christians used to be harsh slave owners? How many people are tempted not to trust in Christ because they have heard of scandalous, hungry, money-hungry pastors? Woe to us, woe to us if we, by our actions, lead people away from Jesus. And God bless us if, by our actions, we lead people to Jesus. This is why teachers of God's word and leaders will be judged more strictly by God. And this is why all should watch their life and doctrine closely. If for any reason Pastor Thabiti or Pastor Matt or myself begins to sin openly and without repentance or begins to teach false doctrine, then you should bring it to our attention and then to the attention of the church. And then if, anyone, and then if we're unwilling to change, then you should vote us out or leave. The stakes are too high. We're talking about souls. This is why I asked my wife a couple months ago that if she ever found me at home doing anything that disqualifies myself from a pastor to tell somebody. The stakes are too high. So, professing Christian, if you are in a church and you know that it is not teaching the Bible correctly and you know that the lives of the people are against the ways of God, don't be deceived. The result of bad teachers could lead you into condemnation. You may find yourself far away from God because you have followed blind guides. That's what happened to Israel. They end up sacrificing their children, sacrificing their children to false gods. And their leaders led them in that. Well, if you say, this is, this is why I don't go to church anyway, because they got bad leaders. Yeah, well, you have a spiritual leader, too. And it may not be these pastors. It's yourself. And you're no better. You worship something, whether it's sports, money, music, career, or time, or comfort. You orient your life around something. You, list, you get your instructions from something or someone. And you have a king. Something that controls you, whether it's your emotions, whether it's your fears, you have a king. So the question is not, do we have spiritual leaders? The question is, do we have the right ones? Don't look at your situation to determine if you have the right ones. 
They might lead you wrong completely. I was in the barber shop the other day, and I asked one of the barbers, um, how do you know God is on your side? He said, I know God is on my side because um, when I was obeying him, my dogs got, I'm not kidding you not, he said, my dogs got better and, and my car started running correctly. Everything started going good. I'm like, bro, that's kibbles and bits in the oil chains. That does not mean God is on your side. You can't, look at, you can't look at your prosperity. You can't look at things that's going on good in your life because all of those things will perish. All of those things will perish. So, so how are you going to be reconciled to God? How are you going to be reconciled to God? Who's going to be your mediator? Well, I praise God that he sent one. If you could turn over to Jeremiah chapter 33, and we'll find out someone who is a great mediator. Jeremiah 33, verse 14 to 18. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel, and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to burn, offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. This must have been a joy for the people to hear. They had gone so far to sacrifice their children and do other things and they probably thought that they couldn't dig themselves out of the pit, and that's true. They couldn't. That's why the Lord sent someone. And he sent someone, it says, to execute justice and righteousness in the land. The king didn't come to, to, to lower the standard of the law so that people can meet it, nor did he come to sweep sin under the rug. No, justice was going to be executed. But how will anybody be saved? if he executes justice purely? How would Judah be able to stand in the presence of God with all of their filth? Well, the only way would be if they were able to say, the Lord is our righteousness. They had to put their faith in the Lord and they would be granted righteousness that was beyond them and not because of them. That's good news. And that's news for us, too. You see, this is just pointing to a great judgment day. He is pointing towards something and someone else. He is foreshadowing an event. God is hinting. God is pointing. God makes promises in the Old Testament, and he fulfills them in the New Testament. There's a unity. There's one God, many writers, one storyline. Sum it up, Jesus Christ. Worship him. Because he's all you got. 
That's the story. The righteous branch of David is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ will come to judge the world in righteousness. One day when we stand before the judgment seat, we will have to give account for what we have done. And if we try to claim a righteousness of our own, we will be doomed because as you read, as you read along with Wes, all have broken the law of God. But God is a loving God. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the righteousness that we all need to be saved. Jesus walked the earth and yet did not sin in thought, word, or deed. He, therefore, was truly blameless, sinless, and righteous. He was without blemish. And when he went to the cross and died, he didn't die for his sin, but he died for the sin of all those who would believe in him. He did not deserve death. He didn't earn it. But on the contrary, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But yet he died. And the punishment for our sin and the wrath of God was placed on him. And yet, and we praise the Lord that on him it was fully satisfied. And we know that because he rose from the dead. His resurrection was a sign that to everyone that they should look no further for any broken down mediators, that he is the one that could bring reconciliation to God, between God and man. This is the hope of the gospel. Though we have really, willingly turned from the Lord and broken his commandments, we can find life in Jesus Christ. The scriptures say that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, unbeliever, does your mediator reconcile you to God? Does he make true peace with God for you? Are you saved? Has he earned righteousness for you? Has he or she or it um, took the punishment for you? They haven't if they're not Jesus. So stop trying to rule your life. Stop trying to create your laws and submit to Jesus. You will be saved. Now, I'm not saying life will be easy afterwards, but I'm saying that your life after death will be with the eternal God who will love you forever. And listen, the stakes are high. If you are not reconciled to God, then you will receive an eternal judgment from this just God. But there's no need for that because you can come to him. So if you hear him today, do not harden your heart. Submit and place your faith in him alone. Christian, since, since this has become our peace, we can rest. Listen to this passage in Isaiah. Just listen to me. In Isaiah, Isaiah 54, um, Peter said, my wife and I came across this last week, and it was just such sweetness to us. It says, in righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. 
and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with, with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created this the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. You place your faith in Christ, there's no more strife with him. As a matter of fact, it's not just peace, but he turns now, he's on your side, and he will vindicate you. So hold on to him and trust in him. You know why we can trust in him? Because, because now he has become the, the, the complete the fulfillment of all of these offices. Look again in, uh, in Jeremiah, where we were, verse 17, he, we see another foreshadowing here. It says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. This is pointing to Jesus reigning forever, Jesus being the king. That's why when he was born, the angel said, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is the king we also see a foreshadowing of the priest. Look at verse 18. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. When Jesus came, when he came and in his righteous anger cleansed the temple, he said, this is my house. And we know in Hebrews 10, 12, it says, but when Christ offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And from other places in Scripture, Deuteronomy 18, we are told that God will raise up a prophet. You can read that later, but we know that that foreshadowed Jesus again because Jesus was the prophet. He prophesied his death and he prophesied his resurrection. He said, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it could not be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He, the prophet, predicted and said that he was going to die in Jerusalem. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the king. The one that history has been longing for has found its fulfillment in Jesus. I will turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and let's see it one more time. Hebrews chapter 1 starts out. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us by his son. His son has the last word. His son is the prophet, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is is the priest. He's sitting down after making purification for our sins. In verse 4, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. And then skip, jump to verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of unright- uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Here we even got God saying, Jesus, your You are king and will reign forever. Now, when I look back at Jeremiah and see how important these offices are when they are messed up, and then now when I see Jesus fulfilling them, I know that the gates of hell would not prevail over the church. One of the roles of the king was to go out and fight for the people and with the people and to lead them back into safety. And that's what Jesus, our living Jesus, living Jesus is doing today. He is leading the charge, and therefore, we could join Jahil on Saturdays, and we could join sharing the gospel at work, and know that our God has gone, is going before us, and is fighting battles for us, and is spreading his kingdom. This gives us courage to suit up, jump in, get in, get into battle. We won. And Lord Jesus is the living prophet gives me encouragement because now I know that I'm not the one communicating up here. If your salvation, if, if it was built on me, you're going to be as worse as me. But it's not. Jesus is the prophet. He's speaking through his word. And so far as I'm telling the truth, he's speaking through his word to your hearts. And he does a work in your heart by his word. His word is living and active and moving because our Jesus is living and acting and moving. So get in his word. Be transformed by his word. This is why I love Fellowship Fridays when people gather around and um, go to different houses and, and study the text together. That lets me know that I, our church is in good hands, not because it's in the hands of the pastors or because the hand of, it's in the hands of people who, in the hands of his word, because they're studying his text This is why I love on Thursdays when we get together and somebody asks a question that I can't answer, but then Caitlin Caitlin can wrap it up for us. I'm okay with that that, because that lets me know that our church is founded on his word and his word will stand. We got a great prophet with a great word. We also have a great priest who's right now, right now, sanctifying our worship to him. He's sanctifying our worship to him. 
because when he offered up his sacrifice, it was a sweet aroma, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And he did that on our behalf. And so now, God's not smelling my mess. He smells Jesus, and Jesus is sweet. And he's satisfied with Jesus. And so therefore, if we're with Jesus and Jesus for us, he's what? Satisfied with us. So that frees us to worship and to sing loud so that the people on Minnesota Ave could hear us. Because our worship is going up to the heavens. Now, you can't have Jesus in just a couple of these offices. You can't have him as a prophet and say, oh, I love his word, but then don't have him as king and try to follow his word and submit to him. And you can't have him as king and say, I want to submit to him, but then don't take him as priest, as the one who died for your sins. And you can't have him as priest who died for your sins and then not be willing to go to the word to, to abide with him. You have to take him as prophet, priest, and king. There's one mediator. There's one Lord. You've got to take all of him or none of him. So Christian, take all of him. Non-Christian, take all of him. Take all of him. It's important to also note the nature of our mediator. And we could just stay in Hebrews 1. The nature of our mediator. One, um, when we were in uh, Jeremiah, it said a man would sit on my throne, a, a man would be a priest. And so the man, Jesus, came, and he was, he was really a man. He had flesh and bones. He really died. His blood was really shed. He had real emotions. He really got hungry. He really grew in wisdom. And I'm okay with calling Jesus a man because the problem is not that he was a man. The problem with humanity is not our flesh and bones and our mind. The problem with humanity is that we, were, we come from Adam and therefore we have sinful souls and we have sinful hearts. That's the problem with humanity. Jesus was a man, yes, but he was the perfect man. And I could know he's a perfect man. This is why the virgin birth is so important. This is why the virgin birth is so important. In, in Luke 1, 34 through 35, I'll read that actually. Luke 1, 34... 34 through 35, 
it says, and Mary said to the angel, when, when the angel comes to her and he's um, telling her that, uh, that she will give birth to, to the Savior of the world, the angel says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus was a man born of a woman, but he was also the Son of God, born from above. He didn't have the same DNA as Adam. He didn't have the same sinfulness as Adam. No, he was born from above. He was the son of God. Light from light. True light from true light. And so when I say son of God, I'm I'm saying that he is God. And this is why in Hebrews... The writer has no problem with showing us that he also is God. He said in verse 3, through whom, speaking of the Son, he also created the world. Jesus is God because he, he has all the attributes of God. He created the world. It also says that when he went up into the heavens, he sat down at the right hand of God of the throne. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, as I spoke about last week. The right hand, God doesn't have a right hand or a left hand. This is a demonstration. This is showing how powerful he is. He is the very power of God because he is God. And then if, if you don't want to listen to the writer of the Hebrews, you can look at what God says about his son in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is taken from Psalms 45. God was calling the Son God. So I have no problem with calling Jesus man because I have no problem with calling him God because he has the two natures, 100% man, 100% God. And it's good for us to know both of these when we think about our mediator. Jesus' humanity gives me a model for how to fight against temptation. You all remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. What did he use to fight against the devil? He used God's word. You saw Jesus' temptation in the, in the garden. What did he use to fight? He used prayer. We saw how he walked the earth. He kept people around him. Jesus gives us a model in his humanity of how we should live in our humanity. Jesus also gives me license to hurt. Knowing Jesus was a man gives me license to hurt. One of the most amazing things, stories, is, is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet he still cries. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead, and yet he still 
cries. Christians, it's okay to cry. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to feel pain. Those things do not make you less of a Christian. Look at the humanity of Jesus. Just hold on to Christ through that. It also, knowing that Jesus was a man, gives me confidence that my sin has been forgiven. A man had to die for sins. And therefore, if Jesus was not a man, our punishment would still be on our heads. The blood of bulls and goats and animals could not pay for sins. Only the blood of man could. And therefore, when he died, he died in man's place. His humanity is essential to our salvation. But also, his deity is essential. See, only God could absorb the wrath on that cross. Only God could walk the earth and be perfect. And so I know for not a shadow of a doubt that he was righteous and that he did bear my penalty and that he did rise from the grave because he is the Holy One. He is God. That gives me confidence. That gives me surety. And as God in all of these offices, it gives me courage. See, Jesus being God, he's not, he's not a king by title. He's a king by power and authority. He rules the entire world and all the kingdoms are subject to him. You can't explain the preservation of the Bible without Jesus being a, a, the king who was God. You can't explain the preservation of the church without Jesus being the king who is God. And you cannot explain the preservation of our salvation if Jesus is not God in complete control over all things. We should be awed that he is God because we know that our high priest, our high priest is now atoning for us, has atoned for us, in that our salvation is secure. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, and that is vitally important to our salvation. Now, I know that there are many different religions. And there are many different quote-unquote gods. But you tell me which one provides you a reconciler like this one. You tell me which one provide you a mediator 
Which one gives you surety that when you stand before God, you can say, I know that I am entering into your gates? None of them can. Ask them. They can't. Some may say, oh, my works can get me there. I'm banking on my works. But ask them really, do you really think your works are good enough? Really? They're not. So any religion that says that you can get, use your works to get to a holy God, it's not it. It's not it. You have to be reconciled to him. So if you're not a believer, I'm, I'm pleading with you. Look at Jesus Christ and his humanity and his divinity. Look at him in his offices of priest, prophet, and king, and trust in him. And Christian, know that since we have been united with Christ, and I'm I'm done after this. Since we have been united with Christ, guess what we have become? What did first Peter say? We are what? Heirs, a royal priesthood. A holy nation of people belonging to God to what? To declare the praises of God. We too, being united with Christ, have become in some little baby form, little prophets, little priests, and little kings. But I like what you said, sis, but guess what? That's, that's, we become heirs of eternity. Look at him, trust in him, and when he look at you, he'll say, you will be with me in paradise. In paradise. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have provided everything we need, everything we need for salvation. We recognize our guilt. We recognize our, our separation. We can't ascend your holy hill, but we praise you that you came down and brought righteousness to us. We are poor rulers of our lives, but we pray to you that you have provided a perfect ruler in Jesus Christ. So, Lord God, build our confidence in you and what you have done through Jesus. Do that for the glory of your Son. If there's anybody in here who does not know you, we ask, Lord God, by your grace that you would make their hearts burn right now. Cause them to repent of their sins. Remove the veil. Glorify Christ in their eyes. And give them this hope that will never end. Do this to the glory of your Son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.